Hello, everybody, and welcome to another very special October episode of 28 Days Later. I am your host, Sophie, and you know the drill by now. Uh, Hannah will not be here with me for this episode. She is getting settled into graduate school, so we thought we'd give her a little bit of a break in this spooky season while things are getting hectic for her. And so I am having dear friends of mine who identify as ladies, but maybe don't identify as horror fans. Um, And so this week I am joined by Sarah. Now, you may hear the name Sarah and think Sarah was already on. But you'd be wrong because I have many friends named Sarah. Um, so this is, we'll just say Sarah T, who I know through my job. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, Sarah and I are both in Kansas City, so we. I hope that we are both enjoying the like beautiful fall weather that came in this morning. Oh, we are. I'm loving running in this. Kansas City keeps doing this fun thing that is like, oh, aren't you excited for fall? Well, today it's going to be 85 degrees. Um, so it's I always get excited when it like stays cool for the whole day. <laughs> Agreed. I actually think that it like got really cold for a period of time and then it went right back up and lied to us. Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, uh, I remember talking to some of our clients about how I always think I'm a summer person because like I grew up on the East Coast and I loved going to the beach um, in the summertime. And as I get older, I I always think that summer is my favorite season until fall comes. And I'm like, oh, fall's my favorite. But I somehow forget in between every fall that fall's my favorite. So it's like a it's like a new surprise. It's like falling in love all over again every September into October. <laughs> I could definitely <laughs> agree with that. <laughs> so Sarah, why don't you tell me a little bit about your history as a horror fan or not horror fan? Well, I don't have much history as a horror fan. I have recently really gotten into it. And actually during COVID and quarantine, I have really like spent my time catching up on a genre, which is horror, that I have severely lacked knowledge on. Mm-hmm. I have been really enjoying it. And I think I have covered like, maybe 60-something movies in this time, but still feel like I am missing so many classics. I mean, I feel like the number of films that you've watched uh, in this short period of time has been super impressive. So you're... And I've seen I've seen your list at various stages, and your list is super uh, all-encompassing, which is really awesome, especially for someone who's just getting into the genre. Well, the issue is that every time I feel like I'm making a dent in my list, I get like 20 more suggestions of movies that just add to the list, whether I think that they're, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, they just get added and watched. So it just keeps going. (laughs) Um, So what did you pick for today? Tell me a little bit about what movie you selected and why. So I picked Poltergeist. Um, I picked this actually because I really enjoyed this movie the first time I watched it. um, A client suggested it to me. So I was like, oh, let me take a look. And I really fell in love with this movie. I believe like it, you know, held up over time for me. And I was decently scared throughout it. Well, that is super exciting. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, As we get started, Sarah, why don't you give us a brief plot synopsis for anyone who's with us who somehow hasn't seen Poltergeist? So Poltergeist takes place in California in this seems like a gated community. I don't really know. Um, But it's a family of four, no, five. And just paranormal stuff starts happening within the home, which I find extremely horrific. Mm -hmm. I actually compared it when I first, like, um, I don't know, when I first started watching as like the reverse ring. So, okay, in interesting. Movie. Say more Say more about that. So in the sense that in The Ring, Samara comes out of the TV versus in this movie, the child goes into the, the TV. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was very interesting to see, I guess, I don't know, the court, uh, for me, it was just very fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting read. And um, 
warning up at the top that I'm going to get really nerdy as we discuss this film um, because this movie is one of the films that gets talked about extensively in Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is one of my favorite movie or one of my favorite books. Um, so I have some interesting, I have some thoughts about that comparison because I hadn't really thought about it, uh, but we'll get into it as we get further into the movie because I think that says some kind of interesting things about um, maybe what society was afraid of when this movie came out versus when The Ring came out. Agreed. Um, so give me like a quick breakdown of what your experience of watching this movie for the first time was like. What was your reaction to it? Um, well, I was sitting on my couch. It was completely dark and uh, I was by myself. I live alone. So uh, watching this at certain periods, I definitely like screamed a bunch of times and as someone who has two black cats and seeing them fly through the house every time I screamed was really entertaining yet also horrific on my side I felt really bad that I scared them but it was really enjoyable (laughs) (laughs) um it was it was it was a really good experience and I was not expecting it I Turned it on thinking like, oh, it was made in the 80s. It's not going to hold up. So it was a really nice surprise. Yeah, I really love this movie. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but based on your extensive research of the genre as you get, dig into it, I'm sure you are. They actually remade Poltergeist a couple of years ago, um, sort of in the wave that is still ongoing of remaking kind of older classic horror films. And... The remake of Poltergeist was so terrible. And I remember watching it in theaters with my partner who had never seen the original one. And I hadn't watched Poltergeist. I hadn't watched the original Poltergeist since I was probably 16 or 17. So it had been quite some time. And I really wanted him to watch it. But I couldn't remember if I loved it just because it's like a campy classic or if it was, like you said, I couldn't remember how well it held up. And rewatching it a couple years ago when the remake came out, I was like, damn, this movie holds up. The pra- there, Yes, of course, there are some segments where the practical effects look a little hokey. But like on the whole, this movie has some really awesome effects and I think does a really good drop job of drawing these characters that like you, that feel like real people that you really care about, which not all horror movies do well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think uh, the character that Heather O'Rourke played, I grew really attached to, and I was really pulling for her throughout the whole movie. Yeah, Carol Ann is just the cutest. It, I mean, obviously, of course, Heather O'Rourke is an adorable child in these movies. Like, she has those, like, really weird short 80s bangs and just, like, very long pin straight hair. She's so adorable. Yeah, she was absolutely, she was absolutely cute during this movie. Even, I mean, the whole, even the son on the movie, who I, is, um, his name is escaping me right now. Robbie. Uh, Robbie. He was absolutely adorable and definitely in like 80s swag. Yeah, I love, I mean, I think one of the things we can talk about, and this is maybe a good sort of initial conversation, is that this movie like is pretty specifically making commentary on American capitalism and sort of the idea of the American dream under Reagan. Um, This movie opens to the Star Spangled Banner, sort of like the montage of American images and the Star Spangled Banner that would play on TV channels at the end of the night when programming was over. Um, So obviously this was before both of our times, but for folks who are our age or younger and maybe didn't know this, there used to only be a couple of TV channels and there wasn't programming, especially in the like 50s, 60s, 70s, there wasn't programming on all the time. Programming would go until maybe midnight or one o'clock and then it would shut off and the, the station would just be static until the morning when something else came on. Um, and of course that is ultimately what becomes the the danger point, right? Is like when the, when the TV goes to static, um, that's sort of like when there is danger. But I love the way that this that this whole movie is sort of like very specifically placing the Freelings in this like beautiful neighborhood of like all these matching houses where everything looks the same. Um, and the movie makes a point to show that like they have all of the sort of like capitalist trappings, like material trappings that a family 
quote unquote should have, right? Like they have this nice car. The kids have tons of very branded toys. I mean, we see all of the star Wars stuff everywhere. Um, And I love that this movie is sort of picking at like, look, they have all the things that they're supposed to want and look at the trouble it's bringing them to just like blindly follow this idea of success that they have been told they're supposed to have. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. I think there were certain parts of the movie that really exemplify that moment, like when all his friends were sitting on the couch together, you know, screaming at the TV, enjoying the football game, and the neighbor and him were going back and forth fighting. Yeah, Um, which, again, is, like, such a great part that I think uh, younger folks might not understand is, like, again... Because television, I mean, it's not like TVs were brand new in the 80s, right? They had been around for some time. Um, But there were limited channels. And you, if your TV set was too close to your neighbor's house, like your remote controls may uh, uh, affect the other person's TV. And that's such a great gag where they're both like going back and forth. And they keep cutting to all his friends watching the football game. And every time something exciting is going to happen, it turns to Mr. Rogers and they keep getting so angry. <laughs> it was hysterical. Um, it's really good. And I don't know, like they do this really cool thing. So obviously um, we don't really have the idea of static on TVs anymore, but I remember growing up, you know, like if you were, especially in a hotel or something, or when we had cable, Um, growing up that like you might hit a dead channel that just like didn't come in right and you would just get static and I I have vivid memories of like waking up at night and the tv being on static and it used to really freak me out and I hadn't seen this movie so it's not like I had the expectation that static could it could have something kind of like spooky lurking inside of it but that opening sequence when the static is on and Carol Ann comes down to the tv is so creepy and I love that they sort of use like a strobe light to make that effect feel even bigger and more wide reaching so that like whenever she's facing the television, they have a strobe light right in their faces so that the blinking is a lot more exaggerated. Yeah. I mean that they use very simple techniques to really promote the movie into like being very relatable today. Mm-hmm. I mean, even horror movies today that use that same, like, strobe light feature, but in a different way. I think it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really loved the... And I couldn't remember. This was also in another movie I watched recently, and I want to say it was a horror movie, but I couldn't, for the life of me, remember what it is. But Robbie is really scared of Thunder and Lightning. So you see Craig T. Nelson, who plays his dad, Steve go in and teach him the trick where you can count the seconds between the lightning strike and the thunder to gauge how far away the storm is. And you can tell it whether it's getting closer or farther. Um, And I just found that like, I remember my parents teaching me that as a kid, because I was super scared of thunderstorms. Um, Specifically, I was terrified of getting struck by lightning. And so they would be like, you know, look how look how far away the storm is. The lightning's not anywhere near here. Like, it's not crashing close enough to here for you to be afraid. So that, like, is a very relatable <laughs> segment to me. Oh, I, I actually never heard about that, um, that trick until this movie. So that was really eye-opening. I, to me, at least, you know, going for, like, thunderstorms and lightning storms in the future, I will start counting to see how Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool trick. Like, and it... Obviously, it makes sense if the the sound you're hearing is caused by the flash when they're super far apart. It's because it's taking a longer time for the sound waves to get to you, yes. um, which I just think is like a very cool thing. And what a lovely thing to teach kids that sort of like makes them feel. I feel like when you're little, thunder and lightning are so scary because they just feel like these huge phenomena that you can't really understand and you have no control over them and of course like knowing how far away the storm is doesn't give you any more control um but like it feels like you understand it a little bit better yeah i it definitely does i mean now it it will be it will be um uh, they'll be used every time there's a storm coming up now nice Um, Sarah, what did you think of the parents in this movie, especially because they smoke marijuana? 
I I was really shocked. And then the kid walked in and I know now more places like California and other states have made the you know, legal for recreational use. I just couldn't believe that that was in an 80s movie. It, I was really taken back. At first I was like, that's a cigarette. And then I was, I was like, nope, nope, definitely weed. Which, good for them. Still, you know, trying to keep things spicy. Yeah, it's cool because I think, like, you you know, as you watch, like, classic, especially slasher movies from the 70s and 80s with kids, teenagers, you'll see them smoking weed. Um but it like always really catches me off guard to see these like successful, I mean, quote unquote, successful, like married adults smoking. Right. Um, yeah. And it's just I think it's really cool because it sort of shows off the bat that even though they have bought into this idea of like what the American family is supposed to do and supposed to look like, they obviously are open to um things that are outside of that framework. So I think for for me, it really helps um, create a scenario in which it feels credible that Diane may believe the poltergeist stuff and be open mm-hmm. to it quicker because they're not just like a very like leave it to beaver family, right? Like that, yes, yeah. they've moved into this house, but you can tell that like just because they live in this house now doesn't mean that they are sort of like um, pod people who don't have any kind of personality anymore. Um, And I really like that. I also sort of to that same vein love, there's a scene shortly after that where their teenage daughter is leaving the house and the guys in the backyard that are digging the swimming pool are like flirting with her and being really gross. And she like flips them off and the mom watches the whole thing and just kind of like smiles and laughs. And it's just like proud of and amused by her daughter, which again just shows that like, they are not, um, even though they're living in this very cookie cutter place, doesn't mean that they have become like cookie cutter people. Yeah, I mean, I think even like the smoking weed scene showed that the parents were human and they weren't these, like you said, cookie cutter or perfect parents. They still uh, were humans who, you know, like to have fun. Mm-hmm. And like to have a sex life and smoke weed and just enjoy each other's company acting silly. It was definitely a very different depiction than what I feel like most 80 movie, 80s movies show. Of mm-hmm. like stereotypical parents who have it put together and have a nice job and come home at a certain time, watch the news. It was really, it was really interesting to see. Now, I want to ask you about your experience with the pacing of this movie, because I think I forget in between viewings of this movie how uh, interesting and different the plot structure is here. Because this so this movie is about two hours long and it starts kind of quietly and slowly. It doesn't have what some horror movies have where there's like, I'm thinking specifically of The Exorcist, which has like a pretty long slow burn kind of build up part but before that it has a cold open where we find we see the priest finding this like uh icon or idol Mm -hmm. that sort of like tells the audience that something bad is going to happen right and poltergeist is really interesting that it just sort of opens like here's a normal family living in a normal house and we have a pretty significant chunk of time at the beginning of the film where we're just watching everyone in this family interact normally. And then even when the poltergeist activity starts, it's very, um, it's very like innocuous and innocent at the beginning. There doesn't seem to be any danger. And then when the danger, when Heather goes away, that is sort of like a, I would say that we're sort of like running on a straight line, straight horizontal line. There's a spike where something dramatic happens. And now our horizontal line is like a little bit higher tension wise, but it's still Mm -hmm. pretty flat um, while they're investigating the house and everything like that. And then we have the the sort of initial climax of the movie where they get Heather out and there's another spike and then we get another kind of flat line. And then we have this big finale where everything's kind of going um, all over the place. And it's fascinating watching it now because I think, Um, Once I've seen it more than one time, I can identify that that's what the structure is going to do. 
But I wonder what it was like to watch it the first time because one, there are kind of long chunks where nothing super um, tense or scary is happening. Yeah. But also because I think the sequence where they get Heather back sort of feels like the end of the movie. And then of course it turns out that's kind of a false ending and stuff's going to get crazy again. So I wonder what that was like for you to watch the first time. I mean, it was pretty interesting because like where you said that you thought it was going to end. I also thought the movie maybe had like five minutes left. You're going to cut to credits and that was it. And I was deeply shocked by the twist it took. Um, I, thought everything was over. Um, I thought that the ups and downs were needed. And even though at first it became like sort of a flat line, you know, just like kind of giving some backstory, I think all of it was needed. And even though it was a movie that was two hours, to me it felt like it was an hour long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it never drags. Like there are segments where there's not a lot of, action happening but I don't think there's any part of this movie that I would cut like it's it's the pacing I would say is unconventional but I don't think it's ever too slow no not at all and I think you know since I've watched a lot more I would say like new horror movies uh I kind of preferred the pacing of Poltergeist Mm -hmm. it just kept me on my toes which is what I'm looking for in a horror movie Yeah, I feel like there's something about a movie that's able to sort of carry the tension the way this one is, even when there's nothing really wild happening. And especially, like you said, because a lot of your experience has been watching. I know you've watched a lot of classics, but you've also watched a lot of newer stuff. And Poltergeist is a movie that's that's able to do a lot with without really using jump scares. Yeah, I mean, there were a few jump scares, but... Not many, and I was completely creeped out. I think the scene that creeped me out the most was the raw steak inching across the Mm -hmm. countertops in the kitchen. That freaked me out. I mean, I am someone who is not a vegan or vegetarian, and that was absolutely horrific. The scene right after that where the guy is uh, washing his face, or splashing Mm -hmm. water on his face, and his face just, like, melts off... Yep. Um, I always forget that that scene is in this movie. And as soon as he goes in the the little like bathroom or laundry room, I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no. Like as soon as I remember it's going to happen, I'm just like, oh God. Because I think people who, who love this movie think about this movie. And if you have any awareness, even if you've never seen it, you just have awareness from the um, pop cultural references. You know about the clown and you know about the tree. Um, like those are really famous aspects of this movie that like are really creepy and I think it's the stuff that doesn't get as much recognition broadly that is that is actually super scary and that's not to say that the clown and tree stuff is not horrifying I always forget that the tree tries to eat Robbie like that is devastating it's so scary (laughs) could you just imagine just a giant tree coming through your window stealing you and you know trying to take you with him and eat you It it was absolutely horrific and then the parents running out and trying to save Robbie, but then forgetting that, you know, uh, Heather O'Rourke is in the house and that's where it leads to her being in the TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to nerd out here for a second and tell you some things. So as I said, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol J. Clover is just like, if you are a person who's interested in horror and specifically in kind of academic reading of the gender politics of horror. This is like a must read text. It's really wonderful. And she talks pretty extensively about Poltergeist. And I wanted to tell you and read you a couple things and get your reactions. And so the second chapter of the book um, is called Opening Up. And it's about possession movies. And she's talking about the role of various genders within subgenres of horror. And she says, traditional masculinity, as we have seen it, does not fare well in the slasher. The man who insists on taking charge or who believes that logic or appeals to authority can solve the problem or, above all, who tries to act the hero is dead meat. It is the realm of the occult that issues of masculinity and male sexuality come under long and hard scrutiny. 
On the face of it, the occult film is the most female of horror genres, telling, as it regularly does, tales of women or girls in the grip of the supernatural. But behind the female cover is always the story of a man in crisis, and that crisis is what the occult film and this chapter are about. And so, like, I, I want to start with that because I think it's a really fascinating idea to talk about the ways that slasher films on their face are, yes, we often have a final girl who's able to survive, but as Carol Clover points out, the final girl is usually identified by the fact that she is kind of androgynous. She may dress androgynously or have an androgynous name. She's usually a virgin. She's kind of like boyish and bookish. And so it's, it is only by her kind of um, flipping or maybe not flipping, but it's only by her denying her femininity that she's able to survive. And here we sort of talk about the idea that in a possession film, men have to sort of subjugate their masculinity and allow themselves to be a little bit more feminine in order to make the sort of like transformation they need to. And specifically what she talks about is that in movies, we are more often in possession movies or demonic kind of haunting movies to see female characters accept what's going on first. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas men are like more likely to deny it or try to find other explanations and it takes them a while to come around. Um, and we obviously see that pretty clearly, uh, in this, in this movie. And it's interesting because one thing she mentioned that I didn't really think about is, so obviously Carol Ann is the one who goes to the other side and Diane is the first one to sort of believe in the poltergeist activity. But for a movie that is set in the early eighties and was shot in the early eighties, this movie is centered almost entirely around women like once once carol ann goes to the other side steve and um dr lesh's assistants who are male are basically sidelined where it's like dr lesh the psychiatrist psychologist is a woman the tangina the medium who comes to help is a woman and um and obviously diane is more easily able to connect with carol ann and so it's this really interesting um, space where like this movie ends up being essentially about a group of women who are able to connect with this other side while Steve is largely helpless and unable to do very much of anything except sort of be there for support. Yeah. I mean, Steve, uh, I also found it really interesting that Steve kind of seemed like disheveled throughout, uh, after Carol Ann was taken mm-hmm. while, you know, Diane to be more put together and it's just like we're, we need to get her back you know she just had everything together to be able to take the steps to get her daughter back yeah that that's a really good point i thought um to a degree it might have been the other way uh just because of how some 80 film 80s films are depicted but it was the complete opposite yeah, yeah definitely. definitely and like I wonder how much of that speaks to the fact that that there is this expectation, especially because this movie is cribbing so much on the idea of like the American dream and the model American family, the idea that like it is the dad's job to provide and protect. And yeah. it's interesting, like you said, I hadn't really thought of that, how much more we see the Carol Ann's absence take a physical toll on him. And I wonder how much of that is like a sense of not being able to do what he thinks he's supposed to do as the man of the house, you know, because like he was not able to protect Carol Ann and he's not able to easily get her back. And I feel like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, this movie was made in 1982 or released in 1982. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of is not too long after the women's movement. And I don't, maybe I'm just reaching, but I kind of found like, a correlation that they started putting women as like the center of the movie versus, mm-hmm. you know, the male just coming in and like taking over and being the hero, if you will. Right. And- yeah. And I think like, as Carol Clover says, that's much more common in possession movies. Like you will very often see, I mean, there's a reason why a lot of possession movies center around 
like pregnancy and things like that. For example, I know um, when we were picking which movie to cover for your episode, we talked about this or Rosemary's Baby, which I think are both really interesting examples of um, the idea of like an unwanted force entering a safe space. Yeah. And um, Rosemary's Baby is maybe an interesting example of Carol J. Clover's point because I think it doesn't apply quite as much. I mean, it definitely does, but um, like that movie is really solely about Rosemary and there isn't really, um, there isn't really any point where her husband, whose name is Guy, is willing or able to sort of like subvert his masculine side to understand things from her perspective. Um, Which is maybe the point of that movie that he like can't ever um, understand where she's coming from because he can't let go of his own aspirations. Um, Okay, now Sarah, I want to talk to you about something really wild that Carol Clover talks about and get your response on this. So... She talks about the fact that um, in these kind of movies, in in possession movies, um, possessions or hauntings often happen through an unprotected opening. And she talks about the fact that in this movie, the haunting is coming from these uh, grave sites that were not moved. And so their house is literally built on top of um, all of these graves of buried, buried people. And so the bottom of their house is like an unprotected opening through which all of these spirits are allowed to enter the house. And she talks about a pneuma and she says, the idea of impregnation by the pneuma is ancient and widespread in both learned and popular beliefs. And it turns on repeatedly in the cult films in connection with the reproduction possession of complex ideas. It plays on equally ancient and widespread association between the vagina and the throat, an association reflected in the fantasy of the vagina dentata or the German word for neck of the uterus, which means mother throat. And in the folk belief that the body is open to the devil both during sneezing, hence God bless you, and Gesundheit as preemptive formulas and during orgasm. So she sort of talks about the idea that like, the pneuma or the idea that like there is this unprotected opening through which the spirits may enter. And she offers the example of when Diane starts to run up the stairs and she feels Carol Ann go through her. Um, sort of like she literally like swallows Carol Ann's, um, essence and presence. And I think, uh, the one thing that I always remember about this movie and about Carol Clover's argument is talking about the visuals of what it looks like when they go into the other side, which I definitely want to talk about, which is that when they find this opening in the closet, it is very vaginal looking. It's like all tissuey and pink and like kind of gossamery and it's like undulating. And they literally tie a rope to Diane, which um Steven Steve has to hold on to which feels a little bit like an umbilical cord and when she comes out with Carol Ann they are both covered in this like amniotic goop yeah um so it's like the reproductive imagery is all over the place um so I wonder what you think of that and if that's something that you picked up on watching it that is not something I picked up on whatsoever and I'm kind of upset that I didn't pick up on it I mean, I, I wouldn't have either. I've just, I've read the book several times and seen the movie a lot. So in you saying this and thinking back to the movie, that is completely spot on. Uh, I wouldn't have thought about it any other way. And now when I go back to rewatch this movie, that will, that's all I'm going to be thinking about. Uh, I can see how you think the opening looks like a vagina. It, it I mean, it definitely does. It is. I just, it did not come to my mind whatsoever. Uh, I thought that when she did come out on the other side and the amniotic fluid-like stuff that was all over her and the child, it kind of seemed like, now knowing, it looks like they were reborn, Mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, But I feel like that could also, I mean, be debated because, you know, stuff still ends up happening. You know, the curse is still, or the the poltergeist is still within the house. It's not like everything is over. I mean, even though um, 
Tangia, or Tan, I'm going to pronounce her, Zelda, even though mm-hmm. she said that the house is clean, which now I just felt like after um, stuff started happening again, I mean, whoever hired that lady needs to get their money back because that house was not clean. Yeah, stuff for sure keeps happening after she tells them everything is safe. (laughs) I like what you said about the rebirth, though, because I do do think there is something, um, like when they put Diane and Carol Ann in the bathtub, the way that Diane is holding her daughter does very much mimic the way that we see, like, mothers hold newborn babies. And the way... That Craig T. Nelson is like kneeling, you know, Steve is like kneeling next to the bathtub and is like so glad that they're both safe and healthy and back does feel like it really echoes what we typically see portrayed as far as like women uh, in giving giving birth to kids. And I think you can for sure like say that like they were both reborn in that they were able to go to the other side and come back safely. And that doesn't mean that like the door is closed, right? Like the door was very much still open. That's why things keep happening. But I do like the idea that like they are kind of reborn from this experience of having to go to the other side and escape and come home. Yeah, and save um, save Carol Ann. She, uh, it was just a new, new way of looking at it that I just, I didn't see in watching it. Yeah, it's really it's a really neat read on the on that thing. And and one thing that I love that's not specific to Poltergeist, but is included in the same chapter. So I wanted to just um, address it really quickly is that Carol Clover talks about the idea of um, the one sex model, which is uh, referred to by Thomas Lacker. And I remembered this is the other thing that I remember very distinctly from this book is the idea that we live in a society that believes in a two sex model which is, as we know from debates about gender identity, very based on genitals. And it's like, there are two sexes, you can be one or the other, and they are determined by the genitals that you have. Um, And I like the way she frames it, where she said, basically, um, since Freud, we tend to understand sexual difference as first and foremost, a matter of the presence or absence of a penis. So the idea that like, the only thing that makes a woman a woman is that she doesn't have a dick, right? Like Mm -hmm. if she did, then she'd be a man, but she is less, she's somehow less than because she's missing this thing. Um, And so Carol Clover says, woman represents many bad things, but a lack of castration is not among them. Interiority, not penis absence is a woman's difference in the one sex system. So the idea that like, I think the one sex system typically was an older understanding that thought that women did essentially have something that was the reverse of a penis, but it was inside your body. And Carol Clover is like, okay, I'm not saying that that is right. But the idea that like women, rather than being lacking something, they have something extra, which is that they have this sort of like internal intuition that men don't have. Um, Which kind of shows up when like the whole movie, people keep telling Steve to keep an open mind, right? They're like yeah. trying so hard to get him to um like identify with the more feminine, you know, culturally feminine parts of his nature by just being open-minded and and open to the idea that like not everything is rational and easily explained. I mean, I completely agree. Uh and I think when they first told um him to keep an open mind it was within like the first 20 seconds when they were trying to uh when diane was trying to explain that something weird is going on mm-hmm. and then after he sees it and he kind of seemed like he started believing it even though he kind of seemed like he was going through something he was taken back and his mouth was wide open and he was kind of looked like he was dazed and confused after you know um then he went to his their neighbor's house to see if anything was going on there, which I found very interesting. And he did a really good job in, I think, keeping that open mind or at least portraying he has an open mind. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like to a degree his, like like you said earlier, his masculinity kind of kept creeping in. He kind of started to like 
he portrayed as being like kind of like defeated and not well groomed and I don't know. It was really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering what you would think of well, let me ask you this first. Do you have any plans to watch the sequels to this movie? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I will be very intrigued here. I think I have seen I've definitely seen Poltergeist 2. I don't think I've seen Poltergeist 3, but Poltergeist 2 features a fantastic sequence where Craig T. Nelson um, drinks a bunch of tequila and gets drunk, and it's one of the tequila bottles with a worm in the bottom. Um, (laughs) And basically, the worm is, like, possessed, and so he gets possessed after he swallows it, and it's just, like, a super unhinged performance. And if I remember correctly, has some super gross, like, body horror practical effects that are really, really wild. And that's when Julian Beck starts coming into the whole uh, movie. Yes, as Reverend Kane. Yeah. I am um, in watching and doing some research about this movie or like the series. I find it very, um, there's a, I mean, larger thing going on that I know fans have speculated on, which I kind of sort of believe now the curse of Poltergeist. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about it because I did require (laughs) you to do some extra homework and watch uh, the cursed films episode on shutter about Poltergeist. So before you watched the movie, were you aware of the idea that this movie was cursed or that people believe that this franchise was cursed? Yes. Okay. Um, so after I watched the movie again, I Googled Poltergeist and just, I think the second thing that was brought up was like Poltergeist is cursed. And I mm-hmm. immediately clicked on it because who doesn't like to click on a curse? And when I started reading more about like all the people that have like all the actors and actresses that have passed within um, the series, I mean, I started believing in the curse right away. Mm-hmm. I am a superstitious person. I thought one black cat might have been, you know, cursed. So two kind of balances out, balances it out, which makes absolutely no sense in thinking about this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> now, but it just, um, I, it was, I believe in it and, oh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. So for folks that aren't aware, um, there is a, there has been long been sort of a rumor or a belief that the Poltergeist franchise may be cursed. And as Sarah alluded to, several folks um, that worked on the movie passed away, many of whom passed away prematurely. So probably the most famous is that Heather O'Rourke, who played um, Carol Ann, passed away um, from septic shock. She had a undiagnosed congenital condition where essentially there was a, a cyst in her um, in one of her intestines that was sort of gathering waste for years and years, and doctors didn't know it was there, and it burst, and she died. Um, and that was like that happened right before Poltergeist three came out. Um, And of course, probably the other really famous death related to this movie is Dominique Dunn, who played the older sister, um, died after an abusive altercation with an estranged boyfriend who strangled her into unconsciousness. And then she never came out of a coma um, and was later taken off life support. Of course, um, you alluded to Julian Beck, who passed away. He was, of course, um, older and had had cancer for quite some time. So that was much more... um, Expected, and then also Will Sampson, who plays like a shaman, uh, an indigenous shaman in uh, the second Poltergeist movie. He passed away uh, also relatively uh, unexpectedly. And probably one of the most famous things about this curse is the idea that in the very famous scene where Diane, um, played by Joe Beth Williams, is in the pool, the skeletons are real. Um, they do talk to the prop director in the episode of Cursed Films, and he's like, yeah, of course the skeletons were real. Like, we couldn't afford to get someone to come sculpt skeletons, but this is, like, a very common practice in Hollywood, especially in lower-budget movies. Um, I was shocked so, when I heard that. I yeah, I can't lie. I did not know that was the case. And I have – I give mad props to the individual who played Diane because I don't know how I would feel in, like, this pool – with a bunch of real skeletons around me. And like all the water's getting in her mouth. 
Yeah, no. It it was it. I would have nightmares just from doing that scene as her as playing the mom. Uh, I do have a question for you, Sophie. About um, I know you have watched the Shutter um, the Shutter homework as well. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel about hearing that Heather O'Rourke was replaced in that third movie? Uh, another you know child actress played her um but they just didn't show her face i felt like that was very creepy and added to the whole idea of a curse yeah it's a really heartbreaking story so um they taught the the director of poltergeist 3 talks about it in the document or in cursed films and you can tell that it's something that still really bothers him um because they had already finished shooting the movie when Heather O'Rourke passed away, but then the production company wanted a different ending. And the director did not want to shoot a new ending um, because A, he liked the ending that they had, and B, he didn't want to shoot an ending that didn't have Heather O'Rourke in it. And so the production company required him to reshoot the ending and basically use a body double who just never shows her face to the camera, which is super creepy. And honestly, more than it being creepy just has to be so heartbreaking to the people that were on the set. I mean, this isn't the same thing, but uh, my partner and I are huge Fast and Furious fans. And obviously Paul Walker tragically passed away in the middle of them shooting Furious 7. So what they were what they did was there are several shots particularly later in the movie where one of Paul uh, Paul Walker's brothers plays him and they just like kind of CGI Paul Walker's face onto his brothers both look a lot like him so they kind of just uh, graphically doctored their faces to look more like Paul Walker um, but there are two scenes in particular that are really heartbreaking one where he's calling the woman who plays his wife in the movie to sort of like tell him he loves her because he's worried that this, he might not survive the mission or whatever. And, um, he, I think if I remember correctly, they had recorded his side of the phone call, but not hers when he passed away. And so you're watching this scene that is like really heartbreaking for the character, but also, you know, that this actress is listening to a recording of her dear friend who has passed away and having to act. And it's like really sad to watch the scene. Um, And, you know, same thing. There are scenes later in the movie where like everyone says goodbye to him because they kind of like write his character out of the franchise. Um, And of course he's passed at that point. So whenever you see him in those sequences, it's like a CGI version of him. And it's so sad to watch. So for me, I think honestly, even more than being creepy, the way that they had to reshoot the ending for Poltergeist 3 just makes me really sad for all the people involved, actors, directors, everyone who, you know, the loss of Heather O'Rourke was still really fresh and they had to just kind of like go on without her. I think that probably was really painful for them to do. And you can tell that the director is still like haunted by the fact that that's how the production company chose to end the movie. Yeah. And I, I know I, I felt like my heart really went out to the O'Rourke family. In yeah. Seeing, I mean, in the Shutter uh, episode, it you know, it really shows that you know the director was very uncomfortable, and I couldn't imagine how the family must have felt. Yeah. So the, it's interesting that you that you talked about. Um, I for sure, I'm like a superstitious person. I definitely believe in ghosts and things like that. Um, Cursed Films, the first season covered five movies. They did um, Poltergeist, The Omen, The Exorcist, The Crow, and the Twilight Zone movie. And I had heard about, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that people thought there was a curse associated with The Crow. I just knew about the tragedy that happened on set. But I knew about all the other ones and kind of believed them. Um... And I had maybe a really different reaction to watching them than you. And I wonder how much of that was that like I was aware of the lore of the curse and sort of like what people think the curse caused before I watched it. Um, But I think every one of these episodes kind of ends with people, especially people that were on the film or close to the film, saying like, this isn't a curse and to blame it on a curse is like... um, just sort of like unfair to people who have lost someone. And I don't, 
I mean, I'm not... I'm not here to say that anyone who thinks it's a curse is, like, right or wrong, and I don't think that, like, you personally are harming anyone. Like, I don't mean you specifically, but, like, if you believe the curse is real, like, I don't think there's necessarily any harm in that. I really love... So April Wolf is a film critic who I adore. Uh, listeners of this podcast know I love her because I talk about her podcast, Switchblade Sisters, all the time um, on our show. But um, she's in this episode, and she sort of talks about the idea that it's just psychologically it might just be easier for us to understand these things as a curse because the idea that because like life is such a fragile thing and the idea that life is so fragile is really scary um and that like it's just it feels safer to believe that there's something like sinister and supernatural going on because it makes us feel safer and i think that's like a really interesting read on a lot of these movies that have sort of a lore of a curse around them. I mean, I would agree with you. I think it's really, um, I think it's almost comforting in a way. I know that sounds weird to believe in a curse versus all these tragic things happen, happening to these individuals. Mm-hmm. Maybe comforting is the wrong word. Uh, but I much rather, I don't want to say much rather, I, uh, the idea of a curse makes me feel like, all right, well, there's, you know, a higher force at play mm-hmm. or a higher mm-hmm. power at play versus, all right, well, like, all of this stuff, just, like, all these events happening within, like, individuals within these movies, it just sucks. Right. Yeah, I think, like, it removes... It definitely gives us the ability, I think, to remove ourselves from, like, how sad it is if it feels like it's a curse, right? Like, um, I think the example of um, the Twilight Zone movie is, an, is another really good one where, like, that movie had, um, for anyone that doesn't know, they had a, they were filming a scene that involved a helicopter and um, John Landis, who is the director, um, was being pretty careless about stunts. They were working with these two child, they weren't even child actors, they were, like, children of immigrants that um i think were not even union because that's how they were allowed to shoot with them late at night um and the helicopter crashed and both of the children and the adult actor that was with them were all killed by the helicopter when it crashed um and it's this like awful it is a awful awful heartbreaking story and um i think there is an there is a way that like we as a society want to remove ourselves from that. I mean, to some degree, not to get like super serious about it. Um, you and I both work at an office where we uh, work with folks and represent folks who are on death row. And I think we have both had experiences where it's a lot easier for people to think of our clients as being monsters because if they're monsters and we can identify them, then we're safe, right? Like, if you if you understand the reality that people who have caused great harm are still just people, um, that that scares a lot of people because that means you can't like easily identify them and isolate them to make yourself safe. I would agree with that. You know, I I think it also makes it easier for the possibility of you know what may or may not happen. It makes them feel better that, well, they're a monster, so. Right. Um, but I wanted to circle back and ask you another question about yeah, what go you for thought it. of the desk, the death mask of uh, Julian Beck. Ah, so as I said, I have not seen uh, Poltergeist 3. Of course, they, they talk about it. They show a picture of it in the cursed films. So Or the idea Julian of Beck, it happening. I guess yeah. More the... Yeah. So Julian Beck passed away between Poltergeist 2 and 3. And so another actor played Reverend Kane in Poltergeist 3, but wore a death mask, essentially, of um, of Julian Kane. That's, it's really hard to say because, like, they talk about in the in the cursed films episode, they're like, I don't know if that mask was made before or after he passed away like i i have to believe that it was before because like 
the idea that they would be like, wait, before you bury him, we have to make a mask of his cold, dead face so that a different actor can wear it. Um, That's, like, wild. But, I mean, historically speaking, like, people did make death masks so that they could, like, preserve what a person looked like. Um, So it's just, like, a weird phenomena. And I guess I have a, a, a flip back question for you, which is that, it feels so creepy to have a person wearing the physical mask of someone else who has died. But we have since then seen in movies where actors pass away, they like CG, like I said, in Fast and Furious, they CGI Paul Walker's face onto his brother's face. And yes, of course, in the moment, Paul Walker's brother is just acting as himself. But then when he watches that movie, he has the face of his brother who's passed away. Like, to you, does that feel creepy in the same way? Or does it feel different because they're not, like, physically putting the mask on their face? You know, that's a great question. I feel like it feels just as creepy. Uh, I guess in a different way that, you know, in the moment of the individual who played... Reverend Kane in the third movie, it feels creepy while playing versus um, his brother looking back and seeing the movie and it's the face of, you know, his brother mm-hmm. who passed. I feel like you just feel it at a different time, the creepiness. I know. If I, I think that's wearing, a great way to put it. Yeah. If I was wearing the death mask, you know, of someone, I would feel very strange with the mask on, but I don't know if it were me playing my sister and then I had her face CGI onto my face. I don't know. I would, I don't know how I would feel about that in watching it. I might not just not ever watch the movie. Yeah, for real. Like, I don't know if I would want to see it. It would be so surreal. And I think when we hear examples of that in modern times, it's often a family member, right? Like, um, oh my gosh, why am I blanking so hard? The actress who played Princess Leia, and for some reason my brain will not let me remember her name, which is super embarrassing. Carrie Fisher. Um, Carrie Fisher's daughter played Carrie Fisher in a flashback in the most recent um, Star Wars installment, and then they CGI'd Carrie Fisher's face over her face. Um, It just has to be such a strange experience um, to you know, be filling in for someone who's no longer there, especially if you are like a a friend or relative of them. And it just makes it all the more apparent that your loved one is gone. It's just such a strange phenomena in movie making. Yeah. I mean, if I wasn't related to the individual and this might sound terrible, but I guess because I didn't have the personal connection, it wouldn't feel as creepy or I wouldn't be as freaked out by it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But since I think it's a I'd relative, be the same. I, I would be very, um, I'd be very taken back watching it. Yeah. Oh goodness. Well, Sarah, this conversation has gone to all kinds of places. I wasn't <laughs> expecting. Is there anything about the movie that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? I think that I think the only comment that I would have is the clown had to go from after they got Carrie Ann back. I just want to make that statement. That clown had to go. It was creepy to begin with. And that was before it seemed possessed. Mm-hmm. It just, that clown needed to go out with that tree. What did you think of the guy um, in the Cursed Films episode that owns the prop of the clown at his house? I wanted to borrow so many props in that guy's home. I, for my own personal, like, you know, scare, I want to scare people. But but would you would you own that clown? Would you let that clown be in your house? I think so. I think I might have to say yes. No, you know it's like having Michael Myers' face or like mask in your home. Would you have it? No. (laughs) I people who have been to my house know that I have like a artistic rendering of the like old Halloween poster. like a, someone painted a reproduction of the old poster hanging up in my hallway. And like that Michael Meyer face, Michael Myers face is like maybe the si- smaller than my fist. That's like still almost too much. 
<laughs> oh, I feel like if um, that top ever comes for sale, I have to like gather so many people to chip in to buy it for you. <laughs> what it re- what it reminds me of is I have um, I remember watching a video a couple years ago. So Guillermo del Toro owns a massive collection of horror props. Um, so big actually that he recently, there was like a traveling exhibit where he loaned a bunch of his, uh, old film props to museums and it was like a traveling exhibition. I didn't ever get to go see it, but when it was happening, Conan O'Brien went to his house to see some of the props at his house as like a promotional for the, um, for the exhibit. He has, I don't know if it's the literal prop from the movie or just a reproduction, but he has a life-size doll of Regan from The Exorcist when her face is possessed. Um, and it's just sitting on a love seat in his living room. <laughs> and I was just like, there is no fucking way that I wouldn't just be absolutely horrified Every time I saw that, even if I like, I bought it and I knew it wasn't real. I wouldn't even want to be in the same room as it. <laughs> I don't know if I could ever go to that house, to be honest. Mm-mm. That's just not it's terrifying. That wouldn't be my jam. But the clown, I don't know. The clown is creepy, but it's also whimsical. It's the smile that kills me. If I could turn its face around, then I'd be fine. If you could turn its face around, you just want it to have like a weird backwards head? Yeah. I mean, I would feel better. It's not smiling at me. Ugh, it's one of that those props. so much worse. It's one of those props that no matter where you are in the room, it's always looking at you. Oh, definitely. For sure it is. Ugh. Yikes. Um, well, Sarah, on that note, on our highly scientific and exacting scale – of one to five Bloody Marys, how many Bloody Marys would you give to Poltergeist? I mean, definitely a four and a half. Maybe four and three-fourths. Four and three-fourths. Hell yeah, I like it. Um, I think I'm going to land right around the same place. I'm going to say uh, four Bloody Marys and, like, one of Mrs. Freeling's coffee since the guy said it was so good with, like, some whiskey in it. So we'll call that four and a half. Okay, that's a, that's a good <laughs> good rating i think you know you gotta get creative i didn't want to be like four bloody marys with pool mud in them because like ew but yeah and then i mean you might get a finger in it Ugh! yikes nobody wants that <laughs> nobody wants that um for our in ladier news this week i wanted to talk about billy eilish so people may or may not know that uh billy eilish is a a pop star Um, She is quite young. She's only 18 and she is pretty well known for having a very um, specific aesthetic. And one part of that aesthetic is that she typically wears like very baggy, large clothes. And that is super um, intentional on her part. Like she has said in interviews that she chooses to dress the way she does because She doesn't feel like as a celebrity, she wants people to know everything about her and like her body is her own and not anyone else's business. But recently, uh, paparazzi caught a photo of her in a tank top running errands and people got on the internet. And when I say people, I mean men got on the internet to like shit on her appearance and say really mean and horrible things about her. Um, And she just, I just wanted to say that like, It is such a sad indictment on the world that like, first of all, that you're going to criticize the body of an 18 year old as like a grown man, just like don't. And also like all women in general, but especially someone that young. Um, So I wanted to talk specifically about um, this short film that she played um, while she was on tour for her first tour. Um, The video was called Not My Responsibility, and she's, like, standing in front of a background and slowly removing layers of clothing. And she says, if what I wear is comfortable, I'm not a woman. If I shed the layers, I'm a slut. Some people hate what I wear. Some people praise it. Some people use it to shame others. Some people use it to shame me. But I feel you watching always, 
and nothing I do goes unseen. And I just wanted to read that because I think for everyone out there who identifies as a woman, I think we've all had this experience of just like constantly being watched and our appearance being put under a microscope. And this is just a reminder that like the way that you look, the way your body looks, the clothes you choose to put on your body, that's not to make anyone happy except yourself. And like, honestly, fuck all the trolls who think that what you're wearing is wrong for any reason, because you should just be allowed to do whatever you want. Completely agreed. So listen, I've never been a, I've never been a huge fan of Billie Eilish. I don't dislike her. I just haven't had like strong feelings either way. Um, I'm super, super impressed by this. That feels like a really uh, beautiful and mature way to handle something that a lot of women slash all women have to go through. And especially from someone so young, I just find that really impressive. I give her props every day. She um, being someone who is as young as she is and being the, you know, not only like very famous and talented, you know, really sticking with her own, you know, personal moral beliefs and standing up for herself. I think not many, not a lot of people can do that with the platform that she has. Yeah, absolutely. And having the courage just be herself. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. It's hard enough for most of us to do that with a lot less scrutiny. So, yeah. Well, Sarah, now comes the part in the show where I'm going to say our famous catchphrase, and then you and I are going to try to clink our imaginary glasses at the same time, even though we can't see each other. Yeah. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Hey, everybody. Don't forget to always pee after sex. Clink. That was beautiful. The recording.